Thanks be to God. Good morning, people of First City. And good morning to you on the live stream. I hear that Paul tells us that we are a worldwide church. So good to see you this morning as well, wherever you're watching. Um, as Paul said, my name is Kevin Huddleston. I serve on staff at Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska, which five years ago helped to send and establish uh, this group of people. So this morning is really fun for me because it feels a little bit like a family reunion. Some of you in this room I know deeply and love deeply and have walked through a number of seasons of my life with, and others, others of you have met for the first time this morning. So that's fun for me because it helps me to know that God is at work, God is present, and God is advancing his kingdom uh, through all of you. So it's a joy to be here with you this morning and to preach God's word to you as well. Uh, it's also fun to be back in this room. It's been a few years since I've been with you on a Sunday, and uh, I hear that you guys had a little bit of a nomadic experience this last year, as was already alluded to, a few different venues, a few different spots. Um, so as last year, I know, has brought tons of disruption, I'm sure it feels really good to finally be in a, a place that can give Sunday morning a little bit more of a, a sense of home, a sense of familiarity, and a sense of belonging. So, uh, and if you're anything like me, you probably had a vision for the year 2020 and what it was supposed to look like, Right? Maybe you had some trips planned, some vacations, some things you were planning to do. Maybe you were going to have all kinds of adventures. But as we all saw, the pandemic had other plans. And our lives have been displaced and disrupted in ways that our modern sensibilities just don't compute, right? Uh, at the same time, 2020 was a year of disruption for an entirely different reason. What else happened in 2020? An election. Am I right? That happened. It's easy to forget about it. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you live in the United States of America, there's something about an election cycle and politics that just triggers this abnormal amount of disruption. Raging debates, demonizing others, constant streams of rhetoric and commentary, advertisements, it's relentless. And in a major election year, we seem to see what seems like the worst in people, don't we? Why is that? Well, there's likely a number of factors that go into that, but... One of the big reasons politics energizes so many Americans is because how things go depends on who's in power. How things go depends on who's in power. Or, to say it another way, our good and the good of our neighbors, the good of our city, kind of depends on who gets elected. Presidents, governors, mayors, they change the outcomes of policies, of planning, and the general good of our city, of our state, and of our nation. Now, this is a uniquely democratic reality. Other places in the world where there's dictators and autocrats, they don't get the privilege of voting and having their voice count and matter. And honestly, the best they can do as citizens is hope uh, for the best. They can't actually exert any sort of uh, influence on the outcomes of things, other than just outright rebellion, right? But democracy is a beautiful thing. Democratic politics is an arena for discourse, for dialogue, but sadly, often what happens is it descends into this sort of arena for battle, trying to figure out who's got the better vision for the common good, who's got the better sense of what's right for the direction that we need to go. So candidates craft their vision for the common good, hoping that vision is compelling enough to get you to come out and vote for them. And nothing sums up a candidate's vision for the common good like a catchy slogan. Am I right? Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. JFK, 1960. We can do better. Kind of sums it up, right? <laughs> Things must have not been good in the 50s, apparently. Nixon, 1968. This time, vote like your whole world depended on it. Dialing it up. Turn it up a notch. 68. Uh, Ronald Reagan, 1980. 
let's make America great again, had some good lasting effects, right? Yes, we can, Obama, 2008. I mean, the list goes on. Do you hear, though, in those slogans, the implicit notes, the implicit invitations? Something's not right. We can do better. Let's be great, unlike the previous four years. You see, political catchphrases are meant to draw out and tap on our inner realities that are present in everyday people like you and me. Angst, uncertainty, low levels of anxiety, wondering, are we going to make it? Are we actually going to be okay? Every one of us, in each, each of us, you and me, there's this longing for stability, there's a longing for safety, there's a longing for peace, so that we can flourish, so that we can live the good life that we all want to live, am I right? So that you and I can have freedom, even, to contend for the common good, so that we can actually have healthy debates and dialogue. It's a good thing. So although it's true that the common good of American society might be largely affected by politics, as God's people, the kingdom that we are a part of is not defined by politics. As God's people, our first citizenship, our true citizenship, is not an American one. Our citizenship is a heavenly one. Our true home is the kingdom of God. And that means our good is not dependent on who gets elected, but instead is dependent on who is already on the throne. So while politics appeals to our longings, inviting us to sign up for new loyalties, as God's people, our loyalties are already spoken for. So Psalm 20 shows us that to be a kingdom citizen is to have kingdom loyalty. To be a kingdom citizen is to have kingdom loyalty. So you heard it read already. Let's look at it together. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Psalm 20. And as you heard it read, you might have caught this psalm reads a little bit different than some of the other psalms in the Bible. What's unique about it? What's different? What kind of psalm is it? Well, it's important to understand the context of this psalm before we dive right in. So I've got this quote from James Montgomery Boyce regarding the context of Psalm 20. I'll read it for you. Psalm 20 and 21 were designed to be sung by the Jewish people on behalf of their king and nation. It is a prayer for the king's victory in a day of battle. So Psalm 20 serves as an anthem of sorts, reminding us of our real citizenship and our primary loyalty. So with that perspective of mind, here's a few observations that will help us understand Psalm 20. First, this is a royal psalm. It was written in a time in Israel's history when it was a monarchy. It was governed by a king, no one that was elected. So in this psalm, we get a picture of the king preparing for battle, ready to go out and fight the enemies of the nation. Verse 1 through 5. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from Zion. And give you support. Excuse me. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with your favor, burnt sac- favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. This first section, this is the voice of the congregation lifted over the king. And the king here is referred to as you and your. And then verse 9, we hear this blessing over the king from the voice of the people. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. In the book of Samuel, God's people sought to have a king like the nations around them, and God granted their wish and gave them Saul. 
Uh, Saul was eventually succeeded by David. So now, as this psalm is written, Israel, their good, and the good of all the people in Israel, is dependent on the success of the king. It hinges on the king's good. So, this royal psalm is a prayer toward that end. Lord, hear our prayer. May the king succeed and have favor. Second, this is a liturgical psalm. So there's a form to this psalm. It's meant to be read in the gathered people of God, just like it is this morning, just like we are here, to remind ourselves, to rehearse to ourselves what is true and who we are. So verse 1, you hear it said, May the Lord answer in the day of trouble. So the current reality of this moment is that there's danger, there's threats, the stability of the nation's on the line. The psalmist goes on. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Verse 2, may he send you help and give you support. So there's this hopeful dependence being expressed that God would deliver and protect the king. And then the psalm goes on in verse 3, may he, God, remember all your offerings and favor your burnt sacrifices. Temple worship for God's people was the context of their covenant relationship with God. And the people know that the Lord hears their cries for help. And they know because of the way that God has initiated his covenant love to them. And they return that with sacrifices, with songs, with praise, with worship, and dependence on him. So this psalm as liturgy is rehearsing that story. It's rehearsing the storyline of God redeeming a people for himself and they in turn offering themselves back to God, mindful of God's faithfulness and praying in confidence for him to answer them. Finally, this is a kingdom psalm. You've heard the themes already, king, kingship, lordship. It's about God's king, but it's also about God and his citizens and his kingdom. So I know kingdom's not a word we use very often, so let's think about it for a moment. Think back to your world history class as you think back to medieval times where there was kings and all kinds of conflicts and knights. Uh, the king had his court. He had his supporters. He had those around him. Think Arthur, the knights of the round table. There was also other layers outside of the castle, right? There was uh, peasants and farmers and other people that were uh, tilling the land and making sure that there was food for everybody in the kingdom, and then there was a wall, right? So each of these groups is not in a silo. They're interdependent on one another. The king needed his court. He needed his army. He needed his supporters. Otherwise, he had no power. We also needed those farmers to, to feed the people. And in return, all of those people needed the king, right? They needed the king to actually be successful. They needed him to be strong. They had to support him as he went out in battle. That's reflected in this, these verses. So, the same is true in the kingdom of God. There's a relationship, there's an interdependence between the king and his citizens, between God and his people. But in this psalm, behind the king was actually the Lord himself. It wasn't just an earthly king, there was actually God who has ordained this king to be their ruler. So they knew that God is actually the one who's strong. God is actually the one who's powerful and in control. He's the one who gives life, meaning, and purpose to their king and their kingdom. So the song is a song of worship to him. And to be a kingdom citizen, then, is to have primary loyalty to this king and his kingdom. The people's flourishing, their well-being, their success is actually all tied up in the king's well-being. Verse 9 says, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Our king is going to go fight for us, fight for good, and may the Lord actually give him victory. If you're familiar with uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings you remember that in the middle of the story, there seems like it's pretty bleak, right? There, 
the, the wrong king's on the throne. Uh, there's instability, there's backstabbing, there's uncertainty because Aragorn, the rightful king, is not on the throne. So the kingdoms of Middle-earth are completely in disarray, and there is this longing throughout the whole storyline for the king to return, for the rightful king to sit on the throne. Why? So that there can be peace, so there can be stability, so that there can be flourishing. The rightful king and his rightful rule, peace for all. And not just for the kingdoms of men, right, but for the entire Middle-earth, as it's called in the story. In a sense, this is how Israel operated longing, hopefulness that God would preserve their king because what's best for the king is actually what's best for God's people and their kingdom. That's what mattered most. And so this psalm is calling on God to favor their king so there can be right rule, right peace, and flourishing for God's people and the surrounding nations. So as a royal psalm, as a liturgical psalm, and a kingdom psalm, Psalm 20 captures the essence of being one of God's people a citizen in his kingdom, under his authority, and praying purposefully for the king and the good of the people. Now, Psalm 20 might be about a king and his kingdom citizens, but we don't live in Israel, right? David's not our king. So what exactly does Psalm 20 have to say to us today? What does this all mean for us? The clue to that question lies in verse 6. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed... He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Who is the Lord's anointed in verse 6? In the context of the psalm, it's probably David. The ascription, as we heard it read, attributes this psalm to David, in fact. But who is the anointed one? Is it really just the king himself? got a quote for you to help us explain and understand who this anointed one is from R.C. Sproul. He's a theologian, um, just passed away recently. In Old Testament times, people were subject to anointing when they were called to the offices of prophet, priest, and king. This religious rite was performed to show that the king of Israel was chosen and endowed by God for the kingship. Likewise, the priests and prophets were anointed at God's command. In a sense, anyone in the Old Testament who was set apart and consecrated for a servant task was a Messiah, for he was the one who received an anointing. And in this case, it's the king. But the people of Israel looked forward to the promised individual who was to not merely be a Messiah, but the Messiah, the one who would be supremely set apart and consecrated by God to be their prophet, priest, and king. So at the time Jesus was born, there was a strong sense of anticipation among the Jews who had been waiting for their Messiah for centuries. You might recall from the Gospel of Matthew, if you've you've read it, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, who are the people saying that I am? And they kind of give him this answer, and he's like, yeah, yeah, that's great, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter steps forward, he says, you are the one. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. You're the one we've been waiting for, Jesus. And you know what the beautiful thing about this anointed one is? Is when Jesus takes the throne as the Lord's anointed king, the scope of salvation was expanded. Jesus is the new Israel, and all who are in Jesus actually constitute a new nation. God's people are no longer just one nation, the people of Israel, but everyone in every nation who trusts in Jesus and calls him king. 
In this new Israel, people are gathered from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to create a multi-ethnic kingdom of God. You see, the difference between being a kingdom citizen, reading Psalm 20 then, and being a kingdom citizen, reading Psalm 20 now, is who is on the throne. We are now a part of a glorious kingdom with a good and just king, unlike any other king or earthly ruler. A king that is not elected, but that is enthroned. A king that is not corrupt, but one who is just. A king that does not seize power, but rather empties himself of power and takes on the form of a servant. A king that is not proud and self-exalting, but rather is humble and meek. A king that does not oppress his people, but becomes the oppressed and associates with the lowly. Friends, Jesus is unlike any other king or ruler you've ever heard about, seen, or heard of. He is the son of God, but he is also the son of man. And he was humbled in this life and in his death so that he could be exalted by God to reign with a righteous rule forever. And this king Jesus invites us, you and me, and all people, in all times, in all places, to be a part of his kingdom, to be a citizen of heaven. National boundaries are dissolved There's kingdom unity and kingdom good and kingdom flourishing under his reign. And us as followers can joyfully submit to this king and enjoy the blessings of this king. This king and his citizenship changes everything. Last February, uh, I had the chance to travel to India uh, just before the pandemic took hold and would have sapped that opportunity. So February 2020, I took a long, long flight to Mumbai and I get off the plane and uh, start making my way through the through the uh, the airport, and it's different. Obviously, it's not quite Epley. Uh, a few things were noticeably different. Uh, the sights, the smells, the humidity, everything sort of hit me at once. Um, and I start making my way through all these hallways, and eventually, I hit this giant open atrium space, which is immigration. And there, it's it's just like this giant line. It's like a carnival. I mean, there are signs everywhere. I'm just like, I don't know where I'm going. So I started making conversation again with this gal I had met on the plane, and looking at my visa and trying to figure out what line I'm supposed to be in. And the entire time, I am just starting to get a little overwhelmed. Because it's not Epley, right? This place is totally different. People are different. They look different. Uh, Most of them were from other countries in Asia, but some were from India. Um, And although my visa said, hey, I'm good. I can be here for up to a month. I could just sense, being in that room, that I did not belong in this place. I'm not from here. I'm from somewhere else. I'm from Nebraska. But... My passport says where I'm from, and their passport says where they're from, and for whatever reason, it gave me a sense of completely disoriented. Um, And as I interacted with people, it wasn't just how I I looked and how they looked. I could tell that the way I thought, the way I communicated, the way I was interacting with people, we were just different. And even though, uh, to the average onlooker, it was pretty obvious that I was American, um, I'm still just a tourist. But to them, if they'd never interacted with an American before, They probably just assumed anything I said, did, and and spoke into existence was just like anything that any American would speak and do and act like. So in some sense, even though I wasn't representing any of you in any official capacity last year in India, I kind of was in some way, because I'm American and you're American. And again, to the average person who didn't know anything about America, never met an American before, I'm basically representing the United States of America when I was in India. This is kind of what happens when God, through the gospel, unites us to Jesus in faith and baptism, and he makes us citizens in his kingdom, we 
kind of become foreigners on earth, strangers to the culture around us. Our passport is no longer issued by the American government with a note that says religion, Christian. We're actually given an entirely new passport that says son of God, citizen of the kingdom, currently residing, Omaha, Nebraska. When God in and through Jesus grants us this new passport, our primary loyalty becomes the kingdom of God. To be a kingdom citizen is to have kingdom loyalty. Everything else is secondary. Our good, our well-being is tied up with the king, and he's on the throne. He has and is conquering his enemies. He is building his kingdom, and he makes us a part of it by grace through faith. Psalm 20 is a reminder of that reality. God's people are citizens of a different kingdom. And we are marked by his character. We're called to be ambassadors, representatives of him to the nations around us. And we're called to love God above our nation. We're called to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven first before anything else. So what do we do with that? How does this reality of kingdom citizenship with kingdom loyalty, actually change how we relate to and engage in the world around us. Well, remember how we started this morning. Politics and election cycles and disruption. Democracy is this arena for discourse, which quickly descends into this arena for battle. And worldviews and truth claims fly around all day, all night, social media, the 24-hour news cycle, passions blazing and perspectives changing constantly. I mean, what do we do? How do we walk this tension of being a kingdom citizen while residing on earth? Well, Psalm 20 offers us two answers to this question. Number one, kingdom loyalty changes earthly politics. Look at verse 7 with me. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This imagery of horses and chariots in Psalm 20, it's not the only place this image is used in the prophet Isaiah's day. God's people were actually tempted as the nations were bearing in on them and threatening their safety and stability and security. They were tempted in the moment to go down to Egypt and make a pact with Egypt. Egypt had horses and chariots and military strength. So Isaiah's warning his people, hey, the flesh of horses and chariots is not going to save you. Only God can. So resist that temptation. That's how Isaiah used it. But in Psalm 20, it's a little bit more of a declaration of confidence. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. As a kingdom citizen under Jesus' lordship, I don't need to pin my hopes on a politician, on a policy, or on a platform. And even though we're always prone to that temptation to put our hope in the wrong things, to put our hope in earthly powers, this is especially true in an election year like last year and in fraught political moments like we find ourselves in today. When the stakes seem high and the rhetoric is flying, who do we trust? What brings us peace? What do we actually stake it all on? Can you see that kingdom loyalty changes earthly politics? If you are one of God's people, Psalm 20 shows you that ultimate power is not in horses or chariots. Think about this with me. If you're tempted to stake your hope on who gets elected, What happens when they lose? Friends, if you're one of God's people, it doesn't really matter. Don't get me wrong. To a certain extent, who's elected does make some bit of a difference, right? Certain candidates do produce produce better outcomes for the common good. 
But those candidates are still humans. They're sinners, just like you and me, not saviors. The political arena is not the kingdom of God. His kingdom is actually over and above all other kingdoms. So, our ultimate hope and trust is not in horses and chariots. Our hope is not and cannot be in election outcomes. With the Lord, a thousand years is like one day. How many kingdoms rise and fall? How many presidents or dictators come and go in a thousand years? And it's only one day to the Lord. Our God reigns forever. We are free to actually live like that is true. If you're tempted to stake your hope on a policy, on a platform, on a cause, what happens when that cause does not advance? When that policy doesn't gain enough traction in the public square, we can be disappointed for sure. We are free to be disheartened. But what should follow quickly after that is hopeful prayer and dependence and trust in God's lordship and sovereignty, not despair. Because our king is on the throne. His cause is continuing to advance. His kingdom is not subject to a vote or public favor. Look, in a world like ours, there's always going to be more rage than reason, right? The public square in American culture is this battleground for the vision of good, but we're not called to be culture warriors. We're called to be ambassadors of Christ. And I realize sometimes that looks similar. There might be a need for us to contend wholeheartedly and faithfully for the common good for our neighbors, but our trust is not in horses or chariots. They collapse and fall. Our trust as God's people is in him. Kingdom loyalty changes earthly politics. So let me ask you, have you in your life trusted in horses or chariots? What candidates, what causes, what earthly agendas have motivated and captivated you more than the cause of Jesus? Can you see that Psalm 20 offers you an opportunity for repentance? To turn away from those things that maybe have held you and gripped your heart and return to trusting the Lord above all else. To be restored as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Kingdom loyalty changes earthly politics. That's the first application. The second application from Psalm 20 is this. Being a kingdom citizen frees us to work for the common good. Being a kingdom citizen actually frees us to work for the common good. Here's what I mean. If Jesus is on the throne, if he is king and reigning and ruling, then we don't have to pin our ultimate hope on a politics or platform or a cause. We're actually just more free to contend for the good and the good of our neighbors. We can be open-handed while we're being active. We can be gracious and charitable, not oppressive and antagonistic, because our hope isn't actually in the outcome, right? Now, don't, don't hear me say, let's just be passive and just let go and let God and hope for the best, but at the same time, our activity, our hope, our movement forward is actually still grounded in the truth of Psalm 20. So think about this with me. Contending for the common good in 2021 America can look a lot of different ways, but it probably looks a lot like using whatever political stewardship you have in this day and in this age. So for us today in America, 2020, 2021, I mean, sorry, uh, man, 2020 just lingers in the mind, doesn't it? 
uh, in 2021, in a democracy, vote. If it's true that the Lord has determined our allotted boundaries and places of dwelling, which it says he has and acts, then we are free in a democracy to vote for the glory of God. Uh, the Apostle Paul leveraged his Roman citizenship to advance the cause of the gospel, and so you too are free as an American citizen to leverage your citizenship for the cause of the gospel, for the advance of God's kingdom. So what that means is, hey, vote for the best candidate, you think. Uh, promote the best causes. Uh, go vote for whoever you think will be the best mayor, the member of Congress, or president, but do so knowing that even if they lose, the kingdom of God will still advance. This also looks like appropriately standing for just and good causes, things that will contribute to the flourishing of humankind. So with your kingdom citizenship and your kingdom loyalty framing your thoughts and motivating your actions, you can contend for policies and platforms as what's called a principled pragmatist. It's a phrase I borrowed from a, a pastor in uh, the East Coast, Jonathan Lehman. He describes principled pragmatism this way. For the purposes of biblical justice and within the bounds of biblical morality, that's the principled part, make whatever arguments work. That's the pragmatist part. In the public square, you are free to work for the common good without putting your hope in it. Finally, leveraging your political stewardship in 2021 might look like taking action, calling out injustice, or stepping into the political system itself as a candidate, running for office, perhaps, or just being active in your neighborhood association, having an opportunity to steward something for the cause and good of your neighbors, or be a school board member, or be a PTO president, whatever, it does, whatever you do, do these things as a kingdom citizen with kingdom loyalty humbly contending for the common good and of all people everywhere. Here's another way to say it from Jonathan Lehman. Work to do good while you're here, but know that nothing lasts. This isn't heaven. Political success in our lifetime might look a lot more like faithfulness than results. Have you ever thought about that? The task of a Christian is to serve as an ambassador for the king who is faithful and humble on behalf of that king. We speak to a world generally opposed to the kingdom of God, so we speak faithfully, we speak confidently, but we speak humbly, and then we expect opposition, knowing that the rest of the world is against God's kingdom, generally speaking. But we know who's on the throne. Jesus. And his will will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. And sometimes that happens in our lifetime, but most definitely it happens in eternity. So people of First City, to be a kingdom citizen is to actually have kingdom loyalty. Presidential candidates will come and go. Election cycles are four years. They come and go. So will candidates and causes. So will entirely earthly kingdoms and political systems. But the one thing that will never perish is God's kingdom and God's king. Jesus is on the throne and all things are held in his hands. So would you pray with me and we can thank God.